Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you for this moment in our lives where we can set everything else aside, every worry, every challenge to our, our lives, every sense of our weakness, we can set it aside and welcome you into our hearts. And so we ask you, Lord Jesus, to come and to speak to us now through your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place and that you, Lord, would step into the room and make yourself known. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The title of this morning's message is God's Plan for Your Life. I've said it before, but I don't believe I've ever been in a church where so many individuals have experienced more pain and more suffering and more personal tragedy than this church. And what's remarkable about that is that that qualifies this church to be a church that knows how to handle pain. And there aren't many churches in North America that can do that. Outside of the United States, there are churches that understand pain and suffering. But this church knows it. And as I look out over your faces and I become increasingly aware of so many of your stories, I am amazed at the grace of God in your life that you are still here and that you still love him and you still love each other because it doesn't always end that way. Probably the greatest theological question of the ages, the very first one ever asked, was if God is loving and God is almighty and God is all-powerful, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Suffering and pain by its very nature causes us to ask questions because life doesn't always appear to be filled with victories. We sing about victory, but we don't always seem to experience those victories. It seems to be filled also with losses and with crosses. But underlying these experiences, there is a life-altering truth that he has given to us in his word, and that is this, that God has a plan for his people. God has a plan for his people. Listen to this wonderful promise from God's word, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I want you to see five truths this morning about God's plan for your life. First, God's plan for your life is always dependable. It is dependable. The verse starts out and he says, and we know. Because we experience hard times, there are some of us here, probably most of us, that sometimes fear his plan. 
We're thinking if I yield my life to God, if I give myself fully to him to follow his plan, he is somehow going to have a plan that is less than my plan, that I have a better idea of what should happen in my life. And we're afraid of it. Some of you know we just finished constructing our home here in Wynn. And in the process of that exercise, I learned a great deal. Uh, one of those, one of those, on one of those occasions, I was dealing with a contractor about putting vinyl siding on, on the new home. And, and a, a salesman came, and he shared his wares with me about vinyl siding, and he offered to sell us the vinyl siding. And I said, okay, how much would it be? And he measured everything, and he said, this is how much it'll cost to put vinyl siding on your house. I said, great, that's the cost of the material. Now, how much is it going to cost? to put it on and he gave me a name of a guy and that man came and he looked at everything and he said it's going to cost this much for me to do my work to put this on on the house and he said what I'll do is I'll pick up the vinyl in Jonesboro and I'll bring it down with me and we'll put it on the house for you and I said that sounds good so he did his work and when he got through uh, I got ready to write the check and uh, and so I was thinking I have how much the materials cost I know how much the labor costs, and you add the two numbers together, and you get this really big number. And when he gave me his invoice, it was probably half that number. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I said, although I like your number very much, you picked up the materials. I said, is the, the place in Jonesboro going to send me a separate bill? Because not everything is here. He said, oh, you didn't understand. He said, when I gave you my original estimate, that included the cost of materials. And I said, hallelujah. <laughs> God's plan is like that. In our mind, in our recesses of our mind, we're afraid that somehow God's plan is not as good as my plan. But what we discover is that God's plan is always better. Always. He says, we know and the word used for know that you see there in the English, there are two different Greek words for know that could have been used there. One is a word, gnosko, which means to know something because you've experienced it. The other one, oida, means to know something as a fact. Something as a piece of information in your mind. It is a fact. It is a, it is a raw truth. And that's what's used here. We know. We know this as a fact. Do you know that God has a plan for your life and that it's being worked out? And are you confident of this? It was Corey Ten Boom who first said, God has no problems, only plans. And that's the truth about you and me. Paul expected the Christians in Rome to rest in this promise, and so should you and so should I. So God's plan for your life is, if anything else, it is dependable. Secondly, it is comprehensive. We know that all things work together for good. Now, many Christians tend to think like this. Here's the narrative that goes on in a lot of our minds. If I love God and if I serve God, then I will not have as many bad things happen to me. There are terrible things that can happen, you know. There are horrible things that can happen, but they're not all going to happen to me. No, I believe, I pray, I love God, I'm doing what He wants, so these things are not all going to happen to me. My circumstances will be better. But the truth is, 
all things happen to believers. All things happen to Christians. A little further on, down in chapter 8, verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, you see that? Verse 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's Paul saying? All these things can happen to you. So his plan is dependable, but it's comprehensive. It takes and involves everything that happens in your life. And we are not accepted, we are not exempted from any of the things that happen to human beings. So God's plan for your life is dependable, it is comprehensive. And then thirdly, it is also intricate, intricate. It says, we know that all things, here it is, work together, work together. We get the word synergy from that, that Greek word there. They work together. Literally, all things are working together. It's present tense. It's happening right now. All things are working together for good. Now, there are two great facts that are evident in God's Word that you need to know about. First of all, when we talk about God's plan being intricate, we need to understand first that God is in control. God is sovereign he is master. He is Lord. There are no things happening to you that are out of the control of Almighty God. And that is a truth. God is in control. There are two verses that I want to give you just as examples, just in passing. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, you and I look at that and we talk about chance or odds. But the Bible says every decision of that lot cast in the lap is from the Lord. In Matthew 10, verse 29, and then in 31, he says, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? And so even those little birds that fly, you know, the other day I found a a bird that had run into my garage door. I don't know why, but he was a goner by the time I got out there. He was gone. God knew about that bird, according to Jesus. Now, why is it important that you and I know this? Because if something good happens to you, hear me, if something good happens to you, you are not lucky. It was not because of your horoscope. It was not because of your lucky stars or your lucky pants. It's because God works everything together for good. If there's any experience of good in your life, you can lay it at the feet of Almighty God because God is at work. And God is in control. But there's a second great truth in the scripture that you've got to put alongside this truth. God is not the author of evil in this world. And so the second truth is that God uses human choices 
to accomplish his purposes. You have a free will. God is in control, but he left you free to make your own choices. We go all the way back to Genesis where God gave a command to the man and the woman. One single command to obey. Wouldn't that have been nice just to have one? One single command. And man chose to disobey. If there's evil in this world, if there's suffering in this world, if there's pain in this world, God is not the author of evil. He is in control, but he is not the author of evil. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is damaged. And you are free to make your choices and experience the consequences of those choices. And hence, we have a broken world. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Joseph. Joseph was the youngest, almost the youngest, of a large group of brothers, second to the youngest. And one day, his brothers were so fed up with him because he was, appeared to be daddy's favorite that they roughed him up and they threw him in a hole and then they sold him in slavery. Now, if Hollywood got a hold of that, they'd make a miniseries. In fact, they probably have. It's a, it's a hard tale. I mean, it's, it's awful what they did to him. And as you know, the story unfolds. He goes to Egypt. He's sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house. He winds up in prison. And through a series of amazing events, this boy becomes the second most important and powerful man in the most powerful nation on the planet, Egypt. And famine comes. And all the world has to come to Egypt to get aid and food. And guess who shows up one day? <laughs> Those brothers. And so he now he has this opportunity to get them back. And of course he doesn't do that. And in the course of their conversations, listen to some of the statements Joseph makes to his brothers. Listen. Genesis 45, verses 7 and 8. God sent me before you. And then he says, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. They did something. They kidnapped him. They sold him into slavery. But God was sending him. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, But as for you, you meant evil against me. That was your motive. That was your action. That's what you were doing. But God meant it for good. And so we act. We make our choices. We're free to make those choices. But God always accomplishes his purpose in those choices. His brothers were acting against their brother, but God was acting to assure that his plan was accomplished. Now, some of you think you're playing chess with God. You think I can make a move. I'm free to make my choices, so I'll make this move, and I'll make this move, and I'll get where I want to go, and I'll accomplish what I want to accomplish. I don't need God. I don't need him. You need to understand you're playing against God, and God wins. You can't outwit him. He is sovereign. He is control in control. You make your choices, but he has a plan for your life that he's working out. So it is dependable. It is comprehensive. It is intricate. But number four, his plan is also good. We know that all things work together for good. Work together for good. Now, can I pause just a moment? And say as your pastor and as your brother that sometimes you and I make a terrible, terrible mistake when we try to gloss over the horror of personal tragedy in someone else's life. 
This passage is not saying that we should look, and I'm speaking to some of you right now that have experienced it, that we should look at our loss, that we should look at our tragedy and say this. Well, these must be good things, since God's word says all things work together for good. Or, this awful thing that has happened is a blessing in disguise. That every cloud has a silver lining. You know those statements. Listen to me. The Bible never says anything like that. Bad things are not really good things. When bad things happen, they are bad, they are evil, they are wrong. We live in a creation that has been damaged by sin. We live among people who think evil, who are evil to their core because they don't know Christ. And all they have is their sin that is ruling in them. We live in a universe where Satan rules, where demons are loose. And Jesus said that he is a liar and a murderer and he is the ruler of this world. When bad things happen, they're bad. I want you to see something in John chapter 11. You may just want to jot this down in your notes. You can go back and read it later. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. He knows he's dying. He knows he's died. And he knows that God is going to use this event in a glorious way in somebody's life. But I want you to read what happens in John 11 verse 32. Listen. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus, some of y'all been there and you need to know what's going on. When Jesus saw her weeping, when Jesus saw you weeping, And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He's weeping. He's groaning in his spirit. He is troubled. Why? Because this was bad. This was wrong. This was not life as he intended it to be. He hates the pain. He hates the suffering. He hates death. He hates it all so much that he was willing to come into this world to destroy those things without destroying us. So what is the text saying? It does not say all things are good. It says all things are working together for good. That's the promise. Not some things, not the pleasant things, but all things. Let me illustrate it this way. I brought a jar with me. I want you to imagine represents your life. Now, because all of you are breathing and you are not dead, I'm not going to put the lid on your life yet, okay, because we're not done. 
So we have your life here. And there are things that happen to you that are good and things that are bad. So I brought some paper with me. And, um, and so let's say you have a good day. Something wonderful happens in your life. Okay? And so here it is. Here's the event. It's wonderful. It's a blessing. It's good. Uh, baby's born. Somebody gets married, falls in love. Um, I was going to say wins the lottery, but I got to be careful. We don't want to say that. But something good happens to them, okay? And they feel lucky, but we know there's no such thing as luck, right? If anything good happens, God's working in it for good. So something good happens. And so we had that event, and it becomes part of our life story. It's there. It's part of our, our history. But then as a believer, something comes into your life that you were not prepared for. And something is written in your, the chapter of your life that you did not expect. And it is dark. And it is black. And it is bad. And it is evil. And so that becomes part of your life. And so it's there. Okay? Now there's two things. There's two things. And then something else good happens. Okay? And it becomes part of our life. But then something else bad happens. And it becomes part of our life. Okay? And we put that in there. Now, until that jar is full and the lid's on it, which you know what that means, okay? There's no more stuff happening on this side of heaven. All right? But, but, but listen, until the jar is finished, I cannot look at that black thing and say, okay, I'm going to wait a few hours here and figure out how God's using that for good. I'm going to wait a day and see how this thing that happened is working out for good. I'm going to wait a week. I'm going to wait a year. You can't do that. Why? Because he is working in all things until all things are done. Until you come to the end of the story. You're not going to understand the way you do now. You're not. You're not going to get it. You're not going to see everything working together for good because everything hasn't happened yet. And God is not finished. And the work is incomplete. So you can't wait, but he does cause good to come out at the end. Now, what is that ultimate good? What is the ultimate good that God is accomplishing? See, sometimes we get such a a little mindset of what goodness is and what God's goodness is. That we think, well, if God's working good in my life, then I get to do this, or I get to do that, or this is going to happen. What is it, when he says that God is working in all things for good, what is the good? What is the good? Well, we see it in the next verse, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we could spend all day talking about the foreknowledge of God, and the predestination of God, and absolutely miss the point that Paul's making. Which is God is working something good in your life, if you're a believer, and that good is that one day you're going to have the happiness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. You're going to look like Him. You're going to be like Him. And all that He was in His relationship with the Father will become true of you. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, 
this stuff. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's going to make you into something. He is accomplishing something with the good and the bad. He takes it all and he puts it together in such a way that at the end of time, when you stand before your Father, you have the life of Christ. He is not trying to give you a happy existence on this side of heaven. He's ultimately trying to give you eternal life that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so these things are being used to mold us, to change us, to carve out of us everything that is dark and wrong and unholy and to build into us everything that is pure and marvelous and wonderful and eternal, to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It doesn't mean everything's good. It doesn't mean nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted that happens to a son or daughter of God. Well, finally, God's plan, number five, is exclusive. His plan is exclusive. Notice how it ends up. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So it's not everybody, is it? It happens to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. This promise is not for everyone. It is exclusive to Christians. Defined here as those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. This is not an act of love. It's present tense. We know that all things work together for good to those who are right now loving God. Right now, presently, that is the inclination in the heart of this person's life. They are loving God. How do you become a person like that? I want you to look at one final verse, and we're going to close with this verse. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen. And if, if you're not sure whether or not you're a believer and whether or not you know God, listen to this carefully. This promise only applies to people, it says, who are loving God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. How do I know God loves me? How do I know he cares for me? He doesn't say, by all the good things that happen to you, does he? That's not how you know the love of God. So if you're looking at your circumstances to try to determine whether or not God loves you, you're always going to make a mistake. It's going to be a fatal flaw. You can't look at your circumstances. How do I know that the love of God was manifested towards us? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's how I know the love of God. That he sent Jesus after me. That he sent Jesus after you. Do I want to know how much God loves me? I need to look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he said. Look at what he did. Look at what he accomplished on the cross. And then he says this, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation is the word used to describe what happened in the Old Testament, 
when the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled over the ark that contained the Old Testament law. All that law did was condemn you and me and tell us that we were broken and sinful. And, and that's all the law accomplishes in our life. It shows us what's right and it shows us how much we are wrong. And so they would take the sacrifice of that lamb and they would sprinkle it over that box, the Ark of the Covenant that contained all the law of God, and it covered that ark. And that covering means it propitiated or it covered over our sin. And Jesus Christ, it says here, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning he covers our sins with his own blood. He died for you and me. The sins that we have committed means that we are going to die. Death runs in all of our lives. It runs in all of our families. We do not escape it. And the wages of sin is death. That's why every person dies. But he was sent that we might live. And the only way that's possible is if our sin problem is addressed. And so Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. And Peter says he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And at that moment he was dying on the cross, God was punishing Jesus for sin as if he was responsible for sin, but he had never committed sin. He took your place. He took my place. The Bible says that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That person, that man or that woman or that young boy or that young girl who comes to a place where they realize I'm a sinner separated from God. And they come to a place where they realize that Jesus is the only one who can save them. And they come and they, they surrender their lives to Christ. They say, I'm putting my trust in him to save me and nothing else and no one else. And I'm surrendering everything to the Lord Jesus. When a person comes and puts their trust in Christ like that, they are born again, their sins are forgiven, they are made new on the inside, and God begins to change you from the inside out. It is a work of grace. It is a gift. It cannot be earned. You cannot ever be good enough for it. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough. Jesus did it all. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing. It's, it's an act of worship, but it's also a time where I want to encourage you to respond to what God has said. You may just want to bow your head and talk to him right there where you'll be standing. And just bow your head and say, dear God, I heard what you said to me, and my response to you is, don't ever listen to a, a, a teaching of Scripture a sermon or a Bible study without looking at it and saying, Lord, how do you want me to apply this to my life? And so God has spoken, and if you would open up your mind and your heart to him, he wants you to respond to him. How does he want you to respond? If you're a person who's experienced great tragedy today, his word, he offers his word himself for you. We tend to lay too much blame at the feet of God. We tend to not accept responsibility for our own actions. We tend to take everything that happens in the world and we lay it at God's feet. We make God out to be a moral monster. 
when in fact the Bible just told us that God is love. And God loves you. And I don't know what has happened to you, and I, all I can say is that God has a plan, and if you will give your heart to him, if you will give your life to him, he says he will take everything, the good and the bad, everything that has happened, and he will use it to transform you into the likeness of Jesus, who conquered sin, he conquered death, he overcame every evil. If you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, when we stand and sing, I'm going to ask you to slip out of the pew and to come. There'll be a pastor or a deacon standing at the end of each aisle, and they'll be here to receive you, talk with you, counsel with you, answer your questions, read Scripture with you, whatever is needed. But they'll help guide you through this decision that God is leading you to make. If you're hurting, you need to pray for yourself or someone who's dear to you, the altar's open. We invite you to come and pray. You can pray right where you are. You can come and kneel at the front if it's helpful to you. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, who is a ministering spirit and who is a gracious spirit and who is moving right now among us, who is touching hearts and speaking to minds, who is drawing someone to himself, drawing someone to you, leading them, to you and so Lord we surrender this time to you and we ask you to do a work in our lives to come and work among us as the people of God would you take your truth and cause it to become a, a vibrant reality in the minds and hearts of every person here we welcome you here we want to follow your leading in these moments in Jesus name I pray amen would you stand with me